you can, um, you can open your Bible to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. Now, um, last week we we looked at oof, we looked at um, the question, "Am I saved?" And I do I do pray you you listen to that if you were here or not, whether you listen to it afterwards. But that I want to say the service today sort of follows on what we studied last week. Because today, we are saying, I am saved. And I hope you can truly say that. I am saved. But now the question is, what now? What now? Now last week in in Matthew chapter 7, we we looked at how Jesus gives this warning about not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but they which do the will of my Father. And we looked at a little bit what that means and, um, and the response that we have is often to say, but look at the deeds of service that I did. Look at the things that I did in your name. And then the words of, of God is so true to say that, depart from me, I never knew you, ye that work iniquity. And a lot of what we emphasized last week is this, he never knew you. Not whether you knew of God, not whether you've heard of Jesus, not whether you've heard of the gospel, does he know you? And we looked at a few things, and how do we establish it? How do we know that we are truly saved? And what are the fruits thereof and all of that? And we could then say, we can answer the question then, am I saved? But then the next thing that follows up on that is then, okay, I am saved, what now? What does God expect of me? Now in Ephesians chapter 1, now the whole book of Ephesians is, is written to a specific, obviously a specific crowd geographically in Ephesus, but also to a specific um, people, and that, those are the people who are in Christ, You'll see throughout the, the first chapter, Paul repeatedly says, those who are in Christ, in Him, we're in. It's in, 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 in. And so the, he makes sure to establish his audience. And if you are saved, then you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you should be asking the question, well, what does God expect of me now? And that's exactly what Paul was doing, I think, throughout the book of Ephesians, he was sort of highlighting certain things that should be part of the Christian's life. What are the things that Paul emphasizes to the Ephesians? Because those are the things that I think we should emphasize um, in our lives as being in Christ. So I want to say that we should at least be asking the question, whether we, whether we fully live up to can I say, the, the full picture of what Christ wants for his body, we should at least be living up to the, or whether, we don't necessarily live up to that, but we should at least be asking the question is, what does God expect? What is his desire? What does he want me to pursue after? And so with that in mind, I want us to start off by praying and asking the Lord to help us as we ask this question. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the wonderful rain that's falling outside, Lord. Um, 
thank you that we are so blessed to be able to be together and have your word open in front of us and Lord we know that your word speaks and your word is your revelation to us and our heart's desire is just Lord that you would help us to to have hearts that are soft, who have hearts that are pliable Lord to be shaped um, to hear what you want um, to, say, to tell us this morning Lord um, our heart's desire is to, to please you Father and I, I do pray that you would um, work in our hearts this morning um, Lord for your glory and Lord that ultimately our lives can be the fulfilling lives the abundant lives that you want them to be because they are close to your heart Lord, please come guide us through this book. Please come help us to, to take the things home that you want us to take home. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said in Ephesians chapter 1, just read with me quickly. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein, it, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things, in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined unto the, according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also, uh, also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after, also after you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, that was, there's a lot of info and I think you could probably preach two sermons from everything that we just read, but consistently you see that in whom? In Christ. Through Christ. In Christ. It's all in and through and for Christ. And before we get into our first point, I actually just want to point something out in verse 12 and 13. Verse 12 and 13 says that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ in whom also you trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And so essentially there are two components here. There is the, the hearing of the truth, which is the gospel, and then there's the trust. And those two things are both 
of utmost importance for salvation. But also, I want to say it's the foundation for everything we're going to be looking at today. Because today we're not asking the question, am I saved? We're saying, okay, well, I am saved. But what does God expect from me? So now, just as an introduction, this foundation is you need to hear the gospel of your salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be preached. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the message that the substitution of Jesus Christ taking your place. And Christ dying for the sins of the world that we may have life everlasting in Him. So we need to hear, but what must we hear? This gospel, this, this gospel that Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That is where the power is for salvation. It is in the gospel. But how will the people hear if no one preaches? That's what Paul also asks later in Romans chapter 10. Well, he, first, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you cannot have faith if there's no hearing of the word of God. But then he goes, actually, he says, okay, but if there's no one preaching it, how can people hear? And so there has to be someone preaching it, and then there has to be someone hearing this. So the question, just as an introduction, we need to ask ourselves, am I a voice for the gospel? People can't hear if there is nothing to hear. Also, when it comes to this hearing, um, what saves you is not just positively responding to the message that was preached to you. That's the hearing side. And you can respond in one of two ways to anything that you hear. What puts it into action is the word that Paul uses here in Ephesians, is that you first trusted in Christ. Now this word trust, I, I think, is... I want to say we, we don't fully understand the, the, the meaning of that, and so I went and looked a little bit of what the background of this word trust is. And it means delivered in confidence to the care of another. Delivered in confidence to the care of another. That is exactly what happens at the point when you get saved. When you place your trust, you put full confidence in the other. You transfer your, or you must say, you place complete dependency on Jesus Christ. Not of yourselves, not of works. It's nothing you can do. So it's that complete transfer and the confidence in the care of another. The Greek word I find interesting also has a connotation to, to hope in advance. So in other words, the moment you get saved, you already have a hope in advance that this is what Christ will do through your life. In other words, he will take you to be with him forever. So there's a hope in something, that future payment that will forever be um, your part. So there's a hope in advance. This is all what this word trusts me, trust means. So before we get into our first point, that, I just want to ask that question, have you heard the gospel? If you've heard the gospel, have you trusted in the gospel? Because without that, the rest of today, I almost want to say, does not apply to you. It is, it is good to hear it, and I hope that it encourages you as to what it means to be a Christian. But if that foundation, which is Christ, is not laid, then I want to say we're missing the point by preaching anything else in terms of good works or all of that. So the first thing I want to look at today is, now that I'm saved, I want us to understand the blessings involved in that. The blessings of salvation. 
Now, Paul mentions it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In chapter 2, verse 6, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, we read that, And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. So we are, in, when we get saved, we are made partakers, I want to say, of this heavenly access. This blessings that in your unsaved state you do not have. Sort of what Francois alluded to by speaking about the veil. That veil to the holiest of holies that was torn. And that's when Jesus died on that cross and he paid for that sin. He opened up that that access to the holiest of holies, to these blessings with Christ. Paul actually, well I say Paul, the writer of Hebrews actually says that um, we can approach the throne of grace boldly because of Jesus Christ. The verse before that says that we, um, we have a high priest that is without sin, who suffered all things like, a, like we, but without sin. And because of this, because we, our high priest, who entered it once into that holiest place and paid for our sins, because he is our high priest, who is eternal, who made an eternal sacrifice once for all, because that is who he is, we have access in Christ to approach the throne of God boldly. And that is a blessing. That is a blessing to be able to to, to go to God in prayer and to know that God hears your prayer. And not just that, I think the, 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 the peace, um, the, 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 the joy, the hope, the, all those things that go with being saved, being in Christ and knowing what your eternal um, position is in Christ. That is, that is a blessing that no one else experiences. Only those who are in Christ. So the first thing I just want to point out is that we are in Christ. And what we read in, in, verse, um, in chapter 2, verse 6, is that we are in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice the tense of this. We are in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not one day we will be. We are in heavenly places. Now, you may say, Paul, how can you say that while you were writing to the Ephesians it's because of his, he understood the eternal truth that the moment he got saved he was placed into Christ where is Christ? he is ascended to the right hand of God Christ is in heaven with the Father ever interceding for us if that is where Christ and I am in Christ then I am in heavenly places now obviously I am physically still here and Paul said, while, while I am here, this is fruitful labor and this is what we should be doing. And we should be asking the questions, what does God want me to do while I'm here? But the eternal truth, the fact that if you have been saved, you have been born again. And Jesus, well, if you think about um, Jesus speaking and he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. Knowing God and God knowing you, that is eternal life. Because the moment you get saved, your eternal life begins. You may have heard the statement that says, if you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. 
In other words, if you're born once in this body, in this flesh, and you're never born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. If you are not born again, washed by the blood of Jesus, and cleaned so that you can be eternally with God, if that hasn't happened with you, you will die twice. In other words, you will die a physical death, and there will be judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. That's that second death, what the Revelation 21 speaks about. But if you, are, if you are born twice, you only die once. You die the death of your flesh. But your soul ever lives, sealed in Christ. And so this, I want to say as much as it is a, is a theological topic, it should actually be, be so practical to the way you look at life, the way you live. Because... If this is true, then this life is such a small stepping stone to what lies ahead for us. And we should not be living our entire lives focusing so much on this. And rather start living, if I can say, our eternal life now. I'm not talking about the blessings that come with that redeemed state. I'm talking about the fact that I am laying up treasures in heaven where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. You don't just focus on material things, but you focus on those eternal things. And also, it should give you so much hope that nothing, as Jesus said, don't fear him who can destroy the body. Fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Right? And that's why Paul said, death weighs your sting. Right? Because we understand this eternal truth. That's the first thing I wanted to point out under these blessings is this, call it, heavenly, heavenly aspect, this, this understanding of where I am in Christ and that I am, because I am in Christ I have this hope, this heaven, this everything awaiting for me. But the second thing I want to speak about as a blessing is the seal. Sealed. We read it in, in Ephesians chapter 1. Have a look at it again. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, In whom ye also trusted. Verse 13. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after ye believed, was sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now this seal can be understood in one of two ways. The silk, you can think of like something that is enclosed, like a tin can or a jar that is sealed. It's, it's closed off. It's not, it cannot be penetrated by anything outside of that jar. So it's, it's sealed. Okay? But you can also think of it as a seal, like on a kingly letter, which essentially certifies something, to say that this seal certifies that this letter is from such and such a person. So the seal can be seen in both his ways. And the seal that is spoken about here is the spirit of promise. The spirit of promise. Now, this verse speaks about this idea of eternal security because if Christ, or if the spirit has sealed us like that jar that's been closed off, like that can that's been closed off, it can get damaged on the outside without the inside being, um, what's the word? Perishing whatever, without the inside being affected. So we are sealed by the spirit of promise. But 
what I find interesting is actually verse 14, which speaks about this earnest of our inheritance. This earnest is a word I'm not familiar with. I don't know if it's used so much anymore, but it's essentially speaking about a down payment. It's speaking about a deposit that certifies that a contract will be fulfilled. And if you think about it in that way, that is incredibly interesting. The Spirit is given to us as proof or as evidence that the work which Christ has begun, He will complete until the day of Jesus Christ. The Spirit, the fact that the Spirit lives in you and the fact that the Spirit has sealed you is the down payment, is the certification that God says this contract will ultimately be, befull, be fulfilled one day when Jesus returns. And so we are now in a state in which the contract is already signed, but the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment thereof in our glorified bodies in an eternal state will one day be fulfilled. But the Spirit of God living inside of you, guiding you through Scripture, all of that, that is the, I want to say, that's the, that's the evidence, that's the down payment, that's the deposit to say that this contract will be fulfilled. And to me, that is an incredible blessing to know that the payment which was made by Jesus Christ when I heard the gospel, I trusted in it, and now I am sealed. In other words, that state of Jesus washing me clean has now been sealed off. And so I can make mistakes. And I can get dinks in my can. But what's inside remains pure. And that is eternal security. And that is that seal of the Holy Spirit. And that is also the hope of our future ultimate glorification with Jesus. So this is an absolute wonderful thing, this pledge, this seal that God has given us through His Spirit. The last thing that I want to look at in terms of this, these blessings is revelation. Revelation. Not the book, although I guess the book also counts. Revelation. Now, if you are, as it speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it speaks about the spiritual things being spiritually discerned and those who are in the world cannot understand them for the Spirit needs to open their eyes essentially to it. And So when we have the Spirit, we have revelation of things that people who are not saved don't have. That is through God's Word. The Spirit brings all the things which Jesus did to our remembrance. Jesus said that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. And so we have this revelation through God's Word and the Spirit awakening it or making it alive to us. We have revelation. We have an understanding which someone who is not saved does not have. And I see this as an absolute blessing because when I look at the world, when I look at the state of events, when I think of everything that is happening... I am not, I'm not confounded. I'm not shocked. I'm not, honestly, I'm not worried. It, does that mean I, as Proverbs says, a wise man foresees the evil and hides himself? Of course, you can still be wise and say, okay, I need to move away from that. I need to be careful for that. Of course. But I'm not worried because I know that God, through what he has revealed, is making things work towards his final plan. And that brings peace in your heart. Not just in terms of prophetic things that are happening, in terms of things that are happening in your life. Why, what is the purpose of all of this? Why am I here? What am I striving towards? What should I look for? What should I aspire to? 
what all of that, how should I conduct myself in this situation, in that situation, all of that we find through God's revelation in his word. He did not just say, you are now blessed, you are now sealed, and he left you to sort of just stumble through this world. He actually came and he said, here is what I want you to know. And we can understand that through the Spirit's guidance. And so we should always look at God's word and say, God, teach me. Show me how I should live in this way or in this avenue of my life or in whatever it may be. Look to God's word. There is revelation that comes from being saved and that's one of the blessings. And I really... Sorry, I didn't even point you to the verse. I just realized that. That's in verse 9 of chapter 1. He said, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. He hath made known unto us the mystery of his will. In the context, this will specifically refers to the will that God has for all people to be saved. That's what precedes it in verses 7, 8. And then also what follows it is that hope, is that future um, understanding or that future hope of what we have in Christ. But God's general revealed will we have in his word. I was, oh, mm, I don't have time. If you have questions about God's will, please come and see me afterwards because I wanted to say something about that, but we're going to run out of time. Now, the second thing I want to point out, what now? Point number two. Sanctification. What does sanctification mean? Sanctification is essentially the process that needs to start happening in your life after justification has taken place. Justification is God saying, I declare this person righteous because of the payment of Jesus Christ. That person is declared righteous before God. God looks at that person and he sees justified. He sees Jesus' blood. He sees, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. That is what God sees. That's justification. Sanctification is what does the Spirit of God now start working in you? How does He start forming you to be more like Jesus? In Ephesians chapter 2, um, verse 1, we read, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. It says, verse 13, Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now notice the tense. Verse 2, Wherein in times past ye walked according to. Verse 3, among whom also we had our conversation in times past. And then verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved. So do you, under, do you see there how we contrast in times past? In the past, you walked according to we had our conversation. So in other words, Paul says something has changed. But God, when God stepped in, something happened. It became past tense. 
And so that is essentially the end result or the, the direction of sanctification is one of where these things that are mentioned here, children of disobedience, the prince of the power of the, the spirit that worketh in them, the lusts of the flesh, all of these things become something that becomes more and more a distant past as you separate yourself from this life of sin. And that sanctification, that is something that every single Christian should be concerned about. Here's a nice definition for you if you wanted to know. Sanctification is the act of God's grace by which the affections, that's like the desires, of men are purified or alienated from sin and the world and exalted to a supreme love to God. So it's not just the alienation, but it's the alienation and the supreme love to God. And that's what sanctification is. We need to alienate ourselves. The, 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 the affections of the old man needs to be purified. So, that's what sanctification is in a nutshell. But have a look at how Paul explains it in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. He actually, at the start of Ephesians chapter 4, he says that the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And then he goes into all these things of how we should walk worthy and all of that. But then in verse 17, Ephesians 4 and verse 17, he says, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Remember the definition of sanctification? One is, sanctification is to be alienated from that life of sin. Here it says, as an unsaved person, you are alienated from the life of God, which is exactly the opposite of what should start happening. You should become alien to, strange to, foreign to that old life and be more and more in line with what God wants. He says, having, our understand, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Now that ignorance is not stupidity. That ignorance is a lack of understanding. A lack of why did Jesus come? What is the purpose of all this? A lack of the gospel. That ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Then he says these people are past feeling having given themselves um, over to lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is um, excessive living it's living in the lusts of your flesh, whatever, just giving yourself over to all of that. Just interestingly, that's what happens. You become past feeling. In other words, you reach a state in which you have nothing, I want to say, you have nothing that satisfies you. You are past feeling. So people start looking for more and more and more things that can stir up something in their lives, but they're past feeling. Nothing really stirs them anymore. And then they start giving themselves over to lasciviousness, to just every single thing that they desire, thinking that if they give themselves over to this lust, that they'll somehow find fulfillment. And that is the natural course of a life without God. In Ephesians chapter 2, um, it speaks about we were without hope and without God in this world. That is our state. It's absolutely hopelessness, because nothing this world gives you will satisfy Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says that he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. And he that loves abundance will not be satisfied with increase. 
In other words, if you think anything in this world, whatever it is that you think is the thing that will make you find purpose, find fulfillment, whatever it is you think that is, if I have that, I will be fulfilled. That is the very thing that will lead to more and more lasciviousness because you realize that when you get that thing, it just didn't live up to it and you become past feeling, you become hopeless. And that is the life that we, ha- we had without Christ. Lasciviousness. And then verse 20 says, But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts. I like how he doesn't just call it lusts. It's deceitful lusts. Because the lust tells you, if you do this, you will find fulfillment. If you follow through with this, you will find happiness. But it's deceitful. So we, walked accord- we should not walk according to these deceitful lusts, but we should be renewed, verse 23, in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which, is, um, which, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, verse 17 all the way through to verse 24 Go take time, read through it. But that essentially, I want to say, is the doctrine of sanctification. It says, this is what your life would have looked like. This is what the world, the world outside there, this is what their life looks like. But you have not learned Christ in this way. In other words, you did not get to know Christ in this manner. Christ, when he is taught in truth, when you hear his message in truth, then your life should look different. Something that I would encourage you to do is the rest of Ephesians chapter 4 and the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5 actually gets into, I want to say, what we just read is the doctrine of sanctification. What we then get into is, okay, how does this apply to how I use my mouth? How does it apply to what I do with my hands? How does it apply to the way I um, work? How does it apply to whatever? And it, it really gets practical. And he says, he who stole should steal no more, but he should work with his hands. And so it actually gives solutions to certain things. And this is part of the sanctification process. So if you take some time, please read through the rest of that. But the point is that the way we used to do things or the way we used to think about things should be transformed by the Spirit living now in us and we should be striving for something else. Last thing on sanctifications. Sanctifications. Sanctification in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This is a very interesting verse. Because Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 is essentially a call to sanctification. It takes you through, it takes you through the how you're saved, by which, what you are saved. Now that you're saved, you are created, you are his workmanship. Workmanship is you are his handiwork. You are his um, purposed creation. When you do anything, when you make anything, when you sculpt anything, when you paint anything, when you write a poem, whatever it is that you do, you are doing that with a purpose, I hope. I hope you're not just 
to waste time doing something, but it's really when you do something, you have a purpose in mind. When you are creating a piece of art, when you are building a certain structure, you have a purpose in mind. And we are his handiwork. In other words, God created us with a certain purpose. And so once we are saved, there is a created purpose. What is that created purpose? Unto good works. That is what God wants from you. He wants you to show good works. Now, which good works does he want you to show? The ones which he has ordained. Now, that is, I think a lot of it will be general, but there may be some specifics in that. He may want you to do a specific thing somewhere in the world, somewhere at your workplace, in someone's specific life. But he has certain desires that he wants you, now that you are his child, now that you are saved, he wants to sanctify you. Why? Because he wants to do good work through you, works that he has ordained for a specific purpose. That is what God wants to do. And that should give you, your life, so much purpose to know that I'm not just a person randomly flopping through life, but God made me for a purpose, so much so even to the point of the works that he wants me to do for his will, for his glory. And so that is what God, and that is what sanctification is. Letting your life be that living sacrifice for God to work the good works he wants to work through you. That is what sanctification is. Let me read you a few verses. You can open to Hebrews chapter 10 in the meantime. Keep your place in Ephesians. Just a few um, verses, lest you think this is all the Bible has to say about this subject. In Titus chapter 1 verse 16, it says, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. They profess to know, but in their works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every... Um, um, and unto every good work reprobate. So in other words, they are reprobate to good works. In James chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? This wise man, let him show of a good conversation his works with meekness and wisdom. And 1 Peter 2, verse 12 says, Having your conversation honest, among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you, as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. You show people Christ. You show, um, you, I want to say, you uh, lay up, as it says, coals on their heads by your good works. There's because conviction that sinks in by the fact that you are living your life in a way that is consistent with Christ. Now, I said, open to Hebrews chapter Hebrews chapter 10, and this brings us to our, our third point. What should be important to the person who is saved? Hebrews chapter 10, and this actually stems from this idea of good works. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse um, 24 says, And let us consider one another and provoke, um, to provoke unto good works. We should consider one another and provoke one another to good works. And then it says verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We should not be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together because it's in this assembling of ourselves together that we provoke one another to love 
and to good works. So this brings me to the third point, and that is that the body of Christ or the universal church or whatever you want to call it. I'm just going to say B-O-C. The body of Christ. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, we have a whole lesson that sort of goes into that in discipleship. But the body of Christ is essentially all those who are now saved are in Christ, are his body. Okay? And so we are the hands, the feet, the legs, the head, the eyes of him in this world. And that's why it's also so important to um, live out these good works. Now, where do I get this in Ephesians? Because we're working through Ephesians. I just took you to Hebrews chapter 10 just to show you that connection to good works. But in Ephesians chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, it speaks about, in verse 20, that we are built, or this church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Ephesians 2.20, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for habitation to God through the Spirit. So Jesus Christ is this chief cornerstone of this building that's being built. Now the chief cornerstone was the first stone that is laid. When you start a building project, you need a reference point. You need to say, okay, this is where this corner is going to be, and from this corner I'm going that way, and I'm going this way, and this is where my directions are coming from. Now, Jesus Christ was that first stone that had to be laid so that the subsequent stones could be laid in the correct direction. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're not going to look at that now, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, it speaks about us being lively stones. These stones that build together and how we should be working together. And so essentially, here's Christ, the first stone. And because Christ is laid down as the first stone, we know where we should be laid. Now there is direction that stems from Christ. Christ was laid down, therefore we can be laid down. And now we know because he is the perfect square brick, the direction that way, the direction that way can be established. Now that is Jesus Christ. But now this whole temple of the Lord gets built around Jesus Christ to lay down his life first. What I find interesting about this this analogy of this, this habitation, this this, this building that's being built, is that each stone has a place. And each stone is surrounded by other stones. And what I mean by that is, is each member of the body of Christ, each brick in this building, has a specific place and is surrounded by specific people to fulfill a specific purpose. And it's when those bricks lay in those places, it's when... The hand does what the hand is supposed to do and the foot walk where the foot's supposed to walk and the eye is looking at the things that the eye is supposed to be looking at. And when everyone fits into their place, not just a random place, God put you there. He made you a hand in the body of Christ. He made you a mind. He made you whatever it is because He has a specific purpose. And This body should be fitly framed together. And what is the end goal? To make a habitation unto God. We should be taking church seriously. And I'm not just talking about Sunday in church. I'm talking about the body of Christ. I'm talking about what do I do as a Christian? How do I fit into the bigger picture of what God is trying to do through His body on this earth? What's also important is if you're a hand, you should ideally not be doing something that 
the foot should be doing. If you're an eye, you cannot smell. So don't try and smell. But it's a silly analogy, but that's exactly what Paul actually does in 1 Corinthians 12. You shouldn't be doing what the other one's doing. And comparing yourselves among yourselves, you're fools by doing that. So I'm not saying you can't look to another brother and say, that I need to be more like that. or I want. You can, of course, do that. But just because you don't do what that and that person does doesn't make you any less of a member of the body. In fact, if I want to say you're doing damage to the body if as a hand you're trying to do something that a foot should be doing. It's not made for that. So seek, what, seek the will of God in terms of what he wants you to do in not just the local church, but in the universal church, in the body of Christ. And that should be, if you are saved, that should be something you emphasize in your life. How am I a part of the body of Christ? Where is my duty? Is it more serving? Is it more teaching? Is it more evangelism? Whatever. What is it? Now, as a Christian, ask those questions to yourself. We want to work together. And something else that I think is very, very, very important when we look at each other, do we see a member of the same body? Do I see someone who God put there for a, for a purpose? And am I concerned about helping that person live up to the full capacity of that body? If one finger is not so lacquer, then it's more difficult for the other fingers. And so every person, every member has to play their part for the body to function as good as it can. And you cannot fulfill that for someone else. And you shouldn't be asking that question for someone else. You should be saying, am I the hand I should be? Let's be concerned about the body of Christ and where God wants us to be involved. What is the purpose of the body of Christ? Ephesians chapter 4. What is the purpose of the body of Christ? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Well, it's, verse 11, it essentially speaks about the different positions. There are some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And then it says, For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. So, the reason we are concerned about this, the reason we want to emphasize this, is because we want the saints, those who are saved, to be perfected for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. That is why we're concerned about this. So we all come in the unity of the faith. The faith is the doctrine which was once delivered for all. Jude chapter 1 verse 3. That is the faith. Now we should be concerned about what that faith is so that we can be unified around that. Unity does not come from we putting all our ideas together, like scuffing out all of those which we don't agree on and then saying, okay, that's what we unite around. Unity is something external from us. It's surrounded with truth. Truth. Objective truth that God has given and if we say this is what God has said about what the faith is, then we unite around that. And that's why we find unity in the body of Christ. 
is by saying, not what does that person want, what does that person want. We say, what does God want? And we make sure that we as individuals line up with that and then unity forms around that. And that's what we want as the body of Christ. That's the purpose, so that we can all grow together, make this habitation for God, so that God can not just through individual lives be glorified, by through, but through our church. Through our church. And as I said, it's through this truth. And you will probably be familiar with 2 Timothy chapter, 16, oh, chapter 3, <laughs> verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. What does the verse after that say? That the man of God may be throughly furnished unto good works. Right? Perfect. Throughly furnished. That's what we want. Right? And how does that happen? The inspired word of God. If you say, this is not so important, that's the first way in which you break unity. That's the first way in which you stop sanctification. That's the first way in which you make sure that you can most likely... Um, completely step off, God, off of the will of God for your life. I had a lot more to say about this, but I have to finish up. The last thing I want to say is I'm just going to say all aspects. Now, the book of Ephesians in chapter 5 speaks about how a husband should treat his wife how the wife should treat her husband, how Christ loved the church and how the husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church. It goes on in chapter 6 then to say about how you should parent. It then goes on how to, how to be a child, how you should conduct yourself towards your parents. It goes on to say how you should be a master, so an employer. It also goes on to say how you should be a servant, the employee. And so it essentially flows into all aspects of life. And a Christian who is saved should ask the question, how does God want me to live in all aspects of life? How do I be a better father, mother, son, daughter, employer, employee? How? What does God say about it? And that is the question you ask. is How do I be better in those? So look at those things in your own time. But lastly, what I want to mention about all aspects of life you're probably familiar with the um, no, Afrikaans word is stuck in my, the armor of God. The armor of God. That's what the book of Ephesians essentially finishes up with in chapter six. I find it very interesting. I noticed this for the first time this week. I don't know why. It's actually so obvious. So maybe you'll think I'm just silly for only picking this up now. But it says Ephesians six verse eleven says, "Put ye on the whole armor of God." Okay. It doesn't say. It doesn't say, develop the whole armor of God. It doesn't say, get some steel and putting, start putting a sword and a shield together. It doesn't say, go find the helmet. It says, put on. In other words, it's there to be put on. And like I said, it's very simple. <laughs> but I don't know why I didn't see it so clearly before. We just have to put it on. The problem is, we don't know how to handle it. We don't, we're not familiar with the tools always. I think that's where it comes. We, we, we know there's a helmet, we know there's a sword, we know there's a shield, we know there's all these aspects of this armor of God, but I'm not, I'm not good with a sword, or I'm not strong enough to pick up the shield, or 
this, this breastplate is too big, or whatever it is, you're not, you haven't gotten used to it. You haven't grown, because the things that are mentioned when it comes to the armor of God, it is truth. We have access to truth, but we're not necessarily well equipped with truth. We have access to the truth, but do we know how to work with that truth? Righteousness. Righteousness in Christ Jesus, a life that is being made more like Him. And just the righteousness that's imputed at the point of justification. We know that, but do we actually know what that means? Do we know how to implement it? Then we have um, the gospel of peace. We have faith. We have salvation. We have the word of God. We have all these things. The armor is there. But we don't put the emphasis on the truth that we should. We don't know the truth as we should. We are not as well versed in the, the faith, as in the, the faith that was delivered, the doctrines, but also the faith in terms of exercising our faith and trusting God more. The word of God, which is the sword. Imagine you have a sword, but you've never, you know, as a child you think that when I pick up a sword, I'm going to know how to fight with the sword. Until you pick up one of those medieval swords and you realize like holding it for more than five minutes is sort of um, incredibly difficult. And so the point is just what we think we know of God's word, the sword, and being able to use it effectively are two different things. So we have access to all these things, but are we actually saying, I'm going to put on the armor of God so that I can be a better armor bearer, so that I can be a better soldier of Jesus Christ? Is that, do we put on the armor for that purpose? And I want to say, the reason I'm saying that is because all of this, if you're not concerned with the items of the armor of God, faith, trust, the word of God, all of that, if you're not concerned with that, you are going to struggle with your sanctification. You are not going to be concerned about what it is that I should be growing in to be a better member of the body of Christ. You are not going to know how to live out your faith in all aspects of life. So, in closing, I am saved. I hope you can say that. And if you're not sure, go listen again to last week's sermon. Am I saved? What now? What are the questions you should be asking? First of all, understand the blessings that are involved in that. It, it, I want to say it is, the, it is the thing that points you to know, okay, sanctification, body of Christ, all aspects of life. But if you do not understand what it means to be saved, the eternal redemption that God has um, purchased for you, the fact that your eternal life starts the day you know Christ, the fact that you are eternally secured, all of that, if you don't know this, it's really difficult to focus on all these things because you're going to be, you're going to be struggling with assurance, you're going to be struggling with all these smaller issues that I want to say hinder you from growing up into the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. And so, know the blessings, understand them, know that they're true for you, but then also be concerned about what your life looks like. Be concerned about what you are, are, are being a part of and see your brother and your sister as someone who's a part of that bigger plan. Not just another person. You should be wanting, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, to impart a spiritual gift unto you. Like, I want to come to you because I want, to, I want you to grow. And I want you to minister to me and I to you. And so we should want to be part of our body of Christ to the full extent that God wants us to be. And then also, 
as a as a as a member of the body of Christ you are a member every day of the week and what i mean by that is that there's no member of your body that you only use on a sunday there's no member of your body that you only use on a certain day all members are used every day and i'm not saying you should go to church every day i'm saying you should be in tune to the fact that god has made you who you are with the gifts that he has given you not just for church but the way you handle people every day no member of your body i i tried to think about it i couldn't think of one member of my body that i would only use on sunday nothing you are that member every day and you use that member every day so let's be the body of christ wherever we go and as we do that we live it out in all aspects of life amen let's pray Father, I thank you for, for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Lord. Um, well, thank you so much that you don't just, just I want to say, save us. Not that that's something small, but not that you just give us a get-out-of-hell-free hell card and then sort of leave us to our own devices, Lord. Um, thank you, Lord, that you've given us instruction. Thank you, Lord, that truly a heart is saved does not find your commandments grievous, Lord. Um, thank you that you work in our hearts and that you have a desire to, to fulfill a purpose in our lives. Lord, that, 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 that gives me so much joy and peace knowing that this life, as much as it is short, as much as it is not our eternal destination, it is, it is valuable, it is purposeful, it can have eternal eternal value Lord and, and Lord eternal life and that fellowship in heavenly places is something that can be true right now for those who are in Christ Lord I pray that you would help this truth to sink deep help us to live according to it Lord and be shaped by it for your glory that we can become that perfect that perfect person Lord that you desire for your glory Thank you so much for all you do for us, Lord. Thank you for your hand of guidance. Thank you for your spirit that sealed us, Lord. And Lord, that it's such a big promise of the future that lies ahead. We praise you so much for all you do. We ask that you please bless the rest of this day and help us to be that body of Christ in all aspects of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.